Shoulders of Giants, Talking Old Timers with Thomas Steenberg, the one, the only. What What are you doing, Thomas? How's it been going? Well, Julie, my age is starting to show. I'm afraid a couple of hikes in the bush recently uh, just re- kind of reminded me I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I saw some of your pictures that you posted. Beautiful country up there. Oh, well, we were just down a week ago down in Washington, north of Cougars, Mount St. Helens. It was called the Sasquatch Shingdig. It was more of a social event, but we did a lot of research and stuff uh, at night, and there were a couple of possible footprints found that I found rather fascinating. And, of course... The morning after I left, apparently something had happened in the camp. I still wonder about it, but uh, I have to point out nothing was actually seen. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Well, that was fun nonetheless, right? You got to get out of oh, ab- town for a while and see somebody. Oh, yeah, it was. And it's a beautiful area. It was my first time south of the border since since before COVID, since May of 2019. So I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad you were able to get out and needed that. Really mm-hmm. good. Well, I'll tell you what. We have a special guest tonight that um, many people have heard of our guest tonight. I'm sure of that. You would have to have been living under a rock to not know this person, okay, in the Bigfoot world. Now, he's been doing research, investigating, interviewing. Um, he even has his own podcast. He, he started investigating in 1998. He's literally, um, he, he's been on Destination America and... Uh, National Geographic Channel, History, Travel Channel, um, Discovery. He's just been on all kinds of um, documentaries about Sasquatch. And he's, you know, he's really, he really uses a scientific approach, no-nonsense scientific approach to this whole uh, Sasquatch thing. So... Uh, without further ado, I want to introduce our guest, Mr. Steve Pauls, the Sas- 
the Sasquatch detective. Squatch hello, detective. Hello, hello. Yeah. <laughs> How are hello. you, Steve? Good. I'll answer to anything, just not late for supper. Yeah, I hear you there. <laughs> uh, well, we're glad that you could join us um, on the show tonight, and it's going to be fascinating, I'm sure. But what I wanted to do first was, I know you started investigating back in 1998. You know, it's a long time ago. And what what exactly happened that, that made you want to try to figure out what was going on with this whole Bigfoot thing? Sure. Uh, well, first, let me say it's a great honor to be on the podcast with the great Tom Steenberg. So, like I said, I've always said that Tom has been one of my heroes since the, since I started getting into this. So, oh yeah, uh, hats yep, off, me hats too. off to you, Tom, sir. Um, but how I got into this was uh, a friend of mine <clears throat> had said, "Geez, there's this book um, about Bigfoot sightings, basically in our neighborhood." you know, be it an hour and a half north of us, an hour and a half south of us. Um, and the book covered uh, sightings in the Whitehall area and the sightings in the Columbia County, which is south of us, uh, the Kinderhook region. And the book was entitled Monsters of the Northwoods. It was written by Paul and Robert Bartholomew, Bruce Hallenbeck, and Bill Brand. So that was a good leap off. And uh, being a, an investigator, a professional investigator, since 19... 19- uh, 88. Um, mind you, I had training in both the Reed and Wicklander methods of interview and interrogation. I've taken neurolinguistic uh, behaviors and, and body language interpretation as well. So I was the kind of guy they would call in to elicit confessions from people they thought were doing, you know, nefarious deeds a lot of mm. times. Um, and uh, <sighs> So I started digging. Uh, the first like year was a lot of internet uh, work, and I, I happened to meet some 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 really good people. Um, one of them being Eric Galtman from the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, of course, being the the state just to the south of us. Um, you know, so he was a great resource. But then I started hopping into it, uh, following some leads in the books, and then eventually I ended up talking to like eighty five percent of the people that were in the book. Um, oh, really? You know, just to see. And I thought that originally that, you know, I'm, I'm going to get into this and a lot of people are, you know, I, you know, I, I was doubting the veracity of it until you actually talk to the folks. That's just my investigator in me. And after speaking to a couple of the police officers and uh, one scientist in particular and a, a firefighter that had, had an uh, occurrence actually in the uh, southwestern part of the state, um, you know, after looking at their reactions, listening to them, listening to how they spoke, I was like, there's something to this. Um, there really is. And uh, the benchmark moment, I think, came in, um, I want to say, 2003, uh, 2002, where I spoke to this uh, one gentleman who was a, uh, a, a, Vietnam vet, a Vietnam vet. He was in the Marine Corps. And now he was a truck driver for like the last, you know, 20 years. And he lived on this property for 15 years in rural Rensselaer County, New York. And he had found some tracks and had an experience on his property. And I'm watching him retell this thing. And, you know, his breath became very short. Uh, His, you know, he was, his hair was standing up on his arms when he's telling the story. 
these are things you cannot just, mm-hmm. you know, on command do. Um, and, and looking at the way he told the story and in the manner, and he was just reliving the whole thing. And whatever he saw scared him. And this, he was a big dude. I mean, he was probably like 6'2". And, you know, being a, a Vietnam vet, Marine, no less, uh, you know, and a truck driver, he's been through some scrapes and seen mm-hmm. a lot. And for him to have that kind of fear in him uh, really said a lot to me that, hey, you know what, there is something to this mystery. And that's, you know, uh, going forward. But I always use my investigative toolbox because I felt that uh, every you handle this mystery on a case-by-case basis. You never try to lump it together. Uh, just because this person may have misidentified something doesn't mean this person did. Just because this person hoaxed something, this person this person didn't. So it's always a case by case basis. Yeah, that's that's actually uh, some good insight because some people kind of forget that, <laughs> you know, and they they want to lump everything together. Um, they get too well, cynical that- about it. You got to be open minded. And what that and does I is know it causes, exactly what you mean about yeah. the different um, reactions a person can have when they're discussing what they saw, and the the you know I've, I've talked to people where their eyes just start watering, and like you said, their breathing changes. Yep. So there's always something um, that intrigues me about those people when then I when I'm interviewing that it's just so um, raw to them. Yep. And and the big thing is, too, is when you start lumping everything together, then you begin something called an agenda. <clears throat> and that's something as a – if you want to be a good investigator, you can't have an agenda. It gives you tunnel vision if you have an agenda, and you forget to look at other things. Mm-hmm. And they, they call you the Squatch Detective for a reason. Um, uh, they, they call me the Squatch Detective because – that was actually my, my first email adre- address I picked up because I was a private detective. Mm-hmm. I called myself the Squatch Detective. That's that's. <laughs> I love first, that. My, fr- my first email address was squatchdetective at yahoo.com. <laughs> and, and then I created uh, a free website at the time, and it was uh, Free Yellow. I was using it. It was squatchdetective.freeyellow.com because I had to tie it into my email address. So eventually in 2005, when I decided to create a more nationalistic website on a paid, uh, you know, in a more professional website and go national, we just called it squatdetective.com. And that stuck. Thomas, did you want to uh, jump in here with any questions or? Absolutely. Hey, Steve, uh, I just wanted to say Steve is one of, my heroes now after seeing the way he runs his podcast and he's a stick to the facts never deviate from the facts kind of guy i just want to clarify uh steve uh you basically concentrate in the new york vermont area is that it i i have uh, new york vermont sometimes massachusetts um but i have done investigations uh in oregon and in texas oklahoma alabama South Carolina, uh, just to name a Wisconsin, just to name a few places I've done investigations over my tenure. But I primarily uh, do investigations out of New York, Vermont, um, sometimes Massachusetts. 
Roger that. You mentioned the book, The Monsters of the North Woods, an excellent book. I have a, I still have my autograph copy here. Do you know, is Paul and Bob Bartholomew, William Brown, and Bruce Halbeck, are they still active? I haven't heard from any of them in quite some time. Well, I know Paul is. Um, he's very active on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Robert Bartholomew now resides in New Zealand. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and uh, Bruce is... Uh, just published a book uh, about the kinder creature mm-hmm. and uh, through small town monsters. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bill, Bill is really the only one that hasn't uh, been very active uh, because of his eyesight. He, you know, had very, he had degenerative, uh, that degenerative eye disease. And unfortunately, even back as far back as 10 years ago, he wasn't seeing all that great. Well, so, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. Uh, and you said you interviewed a, a number of people that were featured in this book? Yep, I have. Uh, I've talked to, to Brian Goslin. Primarily the ones that stand out to me is like Brian Goslin, uh, Dan Gordon, uh, uh, Sue Wilson, and uh, another gentleman, which was uh, an anonymous guy. He was actually a, a field scientist uh, mm-hmm. for New York State and had an encounter when he was a young lad. And... Um, uh, you know, obviously, I've interviewed Paul and, and Bill and Bruce, and Bruce himself a witness to a lot of different things going on. Um, now, there yeah. was a number of incidents in the Whitehall region that seemed to take place over a short period of time, a number of them involving a couple police officers. Were you ever able to talk to them? Yeah, Brian, Brian Goslin mm-hmm. uh, was the one who had the incident on Bear Road in 1976. And he probably said the most profound thing to me that I've ever heard uh, from a witness was, you know, people keep asking me, why don't I just shoot it? And he goes, I'm a police officer. and didn't take any threatening action towards me, so I had no right to shoot it. And that made a lot of sense. And uh, Dan Gordon, uh, the late Dan Gordon, he passed away about five years ago. He became public in, I then want to say, about 94, uh, 94 95. Uh, he had a heart attack, thought he was going to die, and he decided, I'm going to put this on the record. And um, so meeting him, and it was kind of funny because I actually sat at a table with them, and this is the first time they really sat together and recounted their stories. And, you know, Brian was telling his, and then Dan, and I've heard Brian tell a story now probably about uh, more than a dozen times, and it's always been consistent, and he always gets, you know, you can tell he gets very emotional about it. But uh, Dan was very emotional about his as well. And, and when Dan got done telling his encounter, that roadside crossing, him and his partner had had, he turns to Brian and looks at him and he goes, and I thought you were crazy, <laughs> <laughs> which was completely a, a one in a million in a lifetime moment there. And in all this time, their stories have stayed consistent. You didn't notice any uh major differences in what they originally said to what they say to you not, later? Not a, not a one. There was no right. any, any deviation. In fact, <clears throat> it was very well known at the time. I mean, uh, there was an uh, article that came out before Brian's sighting in uh, the local newspaper there, which is the Glens Falls Post-Star, which is the closest newspaper, let me put it that way. Um, and it said, Officers Track Creature, and that was the subheadline. 
And they said, although they didn't really see the creature, they could see it from a distance. They didn't see the creature close up. They could see it from a distance. And that involved three separate police agencies, the New York State Police, the Whitehall Police, and the Washington County Sheriff's. And that was a pretty amazing admission that, that they said they can only spot the creature from a distance. So they all saw it, but it was way off. But uh, that whole area at the time, uh, between 75 and 76, there was uh, a lot of sightings going on. There was a, a place uh, in Carver's Falls where a farmer had taken a shot at, at it, who claimed to have taken a shot at it with a shotgun, and it, it skedaddled back into the into the forest. And when the police arrived, they found the shell casing. They actually found the shotgun shell. Um and there was another one, like uh, the next road up, and of course, Carver's Falls Road is off of Bear Road. Um, there was another uh, road, um, I want to say, uh, I, I don't want to confuse this, but anyway, there was the road up from that. Um, there was uh, witnesses that came out, and they, they heard their their trash cans rumbling, and they, they put a flashlight out there, and here's this, you know, eight-foot bipedal creature that kind of just turned around and looked at him and then walked off after they shine a light on it. Um, that was, that was doing the rummaging through the garbage cans. Um, so that whole area was having, you know, sighting reports. There was a, a sighting report on the, uh, Western side of a bear road off the Western side in a cornfield by a farmer. Um, tracks were found on the Pulteney river, which runs on the backside of, of, um, a Bear Road, and that's where Carver's Falls, you know, dumps into uh, just a whole litany of uh, sighting reports all up and down. And then you move over to Route 4, which is the main thoroughfare. It drives into Vermont. Uh, it kind of splits in the village, uh, one to, you know, State Route 22 and State Route 4. And, um, you know, up and down Route 4 between Vermont and in Whitehall, there have been dozens of roadside crossings uh, that have been reported over the years, uh, including including as late as 20, uh, 2019, I want to say. Okay, so Whitehall has continued with reports, but in this, in this incident, so there, there was a rash of them in a very short period of time in 1975-76, correct? Well, I think there has been rashes of sightings. Uh, yeah, that was one of them, but... I can, you know, that was where the media kind of focused on it. Um, oh, I see. Okay, right, 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 um, right. There was a rash of sightings back, I remember, in 2006, where we had sightings uh-huh. off of Bay Bear Road again, and on the other side of Route 4, down by, um, not the Geyser Road, uh, I, it'll come to me, but it was another road that that we were seeing, we, we had basically uh, two separate sightings within a half hour by five separate witnesses, and then we had another sighting like a week later up the road from somebody going into his front yard, seeing one across the road from him on the same, on the same strip of, on, the, on that same roadway. So there, All right. yeah, yeah. Now going back to, yep. to, to the farmer who said he shot at one with a shotgun, do you know if he actually said he actually believed he hit it or not? Um, I don't really recall, but I believe he may have, uh, he didn't, he did not say that he hit it. He just took a shot at it. And that's where he left it. So he didn't really. I, I think he had with the you know the O S H I T moment and like bang. So, uh-huh. 
Okay, so so the follow-up investigation by the police found no blood trail or anything like that. No, no, they just found, uh, as it was reported in my, and from what Paul can, you know, this is all secondhand from Paul Bartholomew and right. Bill. Um, you know, uh, they they found a shell casing and that, uh, they were a, a shotgun sh- and a, a discharged shotgun shell. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm always fascinated when someone says they've taken a shot at it or shot in its direction because I don't think hey we may get something here but yeah always always turns out they either didn't hit it or they they found no evidence that they hit it yeah and and then again that was in the, that was in 75 76 as well so DNA wasn't even thought of at that point in time for forensic use and when did you say was the latest ones you heard of in that area um there was a roadside crossing in 2019 mm-hmm um, but there have been reports in and around Whitehall as well that were recent, rather recent. The um, uh, funny thing is, is I got one from Saratoga County, which is the county over from Washington County from 2018, another roadside crossing. Um, and generally when I get reports, it's going to be next month. I'll have a whole slew of new reports because it'll be the, the – um, uh, Whitehall uh, Sasquatch Festival, which they have now every year. I think this is the fourth or fifth year they've run it in a row. Okay. And now, um, just yep. to clarify for our listeners, Whitehall is that the name of a town or is that the name of the county? That's the name of the town. Whitehall, New York, right. is in Washington County, New York. Washington County, right? Okay. And in your in your opinion, is Whitehall a little more active than surrounding areas? Or are there other small communities that also have continuous incidents reported? Well, I think it's more uh, observed in the Whitehall area because Whitehall is like there's Whitehall, and then it's surrounded by forest, maybe eight miles, nine miles to the next nearest little hamlet, which is Fort Anne. And to call Fort Anne a, a town or a village is like don't blink you know they had to close the zoo because the chicken died uh, <laughs> very, very 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 tiny little community there um but whitehall has a very interesting uh geographic feature to it and that's um to the west of whitehall is the adirondack state park the beginning of the adirondack state park which wraps around lake george and continues westward all the way almost out to buffalo um, whereas on the eastern side of Whitehall is the Green Mountain National Forest. So you have this very strange convergence of that part of the Adirondacks being maple, oak, and birch, which drop their leaves in the fall, versus the Green Mountains, which are deciduous pines, which keep their needles and keep their cover through the wintertime. And it's very interesting. And what I think we've seen, and, and, and both Bill and Paul agree with me on that, is that we see this, uh, the reason why Whitehall is such a hot spot is because it's ground zero for their travel between the two forests. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in your opinion, do you notice any particular differences with reported sightings of Sasquatch in your part of the country as compared to, say, British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest of the United States? No, I, I think the behaviors exhibited in all the sightings are very consistent throughout 
both the United States and Canada. I, I don't see much of a difference in the behaviors exhibited by the creature or what people are seeing. You know, most of the, the most common behavior being, the, the, okay, it sees me and it just turns around and walks away, or it's crossing the road, um, which makes sense because in a, in a primate habitation model, uh, that that's indicative of like a home range activity, and that's where you would basically get your your uh, your sightings most of the time uh, is through these home ranging activities because they're going from point A to point B. And in your investigations in Vermont and New York State, have you ever come across uh, any convincing uh, footprint evidence? Well, yes. Uh, in fact, it was kind of funny. Um, there was one area that I, I had started to um, – in, in 2000, I, I got a report from uh, – I, I can say his name now, uh, John Weitzel. And uh, John uh, uh, has since passed away at a very young age. He was in his 40s when he passed away, unfortunately. Um, but John and his wife were uh, in the uh, Adirondack State Park in Fort Ann, New York. Uh, which is that community just like eight miles to the south of Whitehall. And um, they were walking, they went off trail, and they got down by a stream. And all of a sudden, something started screaming at them. And John described it as something that, you know, vibrated in his chest. And, uh, you know, he had lived up there all his life. He goes, he, I, you know, he was familiar with bear and, and, and all the other animal sounds up there. And he goes, this was something unlike I've never heard before. It vibrated my chest. So mm-hmm. I said, you know, to the wife, I think it's time we, we get out of here. And as they're leaving, uh, something was following him and he could see the shadow of it or, the, you know, it, it, you know, the shadowy figure kind of like go from tree to tree, from tree to tree for a little while. Meanwhile, screaming at them another seven, seven times. And uh, so they got an escort out of the area, basically. Oh. And to me, that, you know, that, that's very representative of how, uh, you know, a primate would deal with a primate of another species in their territory. Yeah. We're going to display, we're going we're gonna to bluff, we're going to make a ruckus, we're going to get them out of there. So to me, that was a natural area to go to. Okay. Now, in, based on your yeah. observations and, and, and your opinion, is there a certain time of the year where sightings are more common, or are they pretty consistent all seasons of the year? In, in our area, the, the sightings increase uh, yeah. from the mid towards the end of July until about mid-December, where they drop off. Right. The, now, your winters right. are quite brutal there, I know. Do you, you think the uh, assuming the Sasquatch actually exists and all this isn't just societal myth and mythology that we keep alive, assuming that the Sasquatch does exist, do you think there's they are particularly inactive in the winter time, or is it just there's less human activity in the woods around there in the winter time, or, or what is your opinion on that? Well, uh, like I say, the um <clears throat> Aboriginal uh, Homo sapiens uh, uh, had their winter and summer homes. Uh, you know, either Native Americans or the First Nations, they had their their summer and winter homes. And I think what we're seeing here is, you know, in, in like I said, in October the leaves start to drop, uh, so the cover is a lot lighter. You can see further and deeper into the woods. Not to mention, if it starts to snow. There's no protection of the snow hitting the ground, you know, being caught up in the trees. So I think what we see is this movement generally 
to and from the Adirondack State Park to the Green Mountain National Forest in the winter months, where those pines will keep some of those that snow on top of their, you know, in their in their limbs versus hitting the ground. So I think I, this, yep. And and that's our that's our general uh, theory we've run on, and you know, Paul, both Paul and Bill and I all agree on that. That this is something we we believe in, and that's the reason why Whitehall is ground zero. Makes hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that that pine bark and pine needles also provide sustenance. They do have a caloric and, and nutritional value as well. So, do you believe the Sasquatch, assuming that it does exist, is an omnivore? Has to be. Yes. I be. mean, to ma- and, and ma- to maintain that body weight, yeah, they they have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have, you know, I remember that old argument. Oh well, you know, there's not enough food in the woods, you know. Wit, wit, you know, in fact, it was on my Monster Quest show that I did way back when on the History Channel, where, you know, you know, they they tried putting out that, um, you know, there's, you know, there's not enough food source in the woods to provide, uh, you know, provide sustenance for an animal that big, but a bear, a black bear, which we have plenty of in the Adirondacks. Um, has to eat something like 21,000 calories a day for 90 days before hibernation. So if something's eating 21,000 calories, a 4,000 or a 5,000 calorie diet for a Sasquatch should be relatively easy to obtain. Yeah, obviously people who say there's not enough food in the woods obviously think black bears don't exist either. But, hey, that's just... Right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and that, that's the amazing thing. I remember with the scientist, the one scientist had said that, and he was an anthropologist. His name was Philip Stephen from, or Philip Stevens from the University of Buffalo. And he was like, well, there's no evidence that, that suggests that a large primate could exist in North America. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, aren't Homo sapiens a large primate? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, um, yeah. And and then the other the other one the one from the Department of New York State Department of uh, Environmental Conversations made this statement. Well, if these things existed, people would be seeing them. That was like, isn't the show what it's about? Is that we're going over about people who've seen these things? <laughs> I mean, That's too funny. Um, so yeah, I saw that yeah. show. I remember yeah. that show. Yeah, a lot of people like to put humans in a separate category, but we're not, basically. We're one of the fire primates, you know. Uh, well, the Sasquatch, if it exists, it would be the six. Uh, technically, there's only supposed to be five. You know, human beings, orangutans, chimpanzees, gimmons, and the Sasquatch, assuming it does exist, would be a sixth one. So if, if we can exist, the Sasquatch can. If black bears can exist... In a uh, in a omnivorous um, forest, there's no reason a Sasquatch can. I don't think personally there's as many of them as there are black bear, but there could be. Yeah, that that's just my opinion. Do you agree with that, uh, Steve, or do you have a different? Oh, opinion? absolutely. I would say probably, you know, there may be a few hundred per state. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're they're in the, the thousands in a particular state. Um, I think that's why they may have adapted some of the the things such as tree knocking to kind of, you know, basically cover an area of miles. That's perhaps even why they may or may not use infrasound 
not only mm-hmm. for a defensive mechanism, but a communication like the blue whale does. Um, and that's an interesting point of view, too, is that all the large primates from different families of animals, the largest of them have the ability to use infrasound. And if a Sasquatch were to exist, that would make it the largest of the primates. And that generally would lend, uh, you know, credibility that they likely use infrasound. Okay, you shocked me there. I was under the impression that none of the large apes have infrasound ability. None of them do. But if a Sasquatch, one of the largest mammals do, like the largest whales, the blue whale can use infrasound. The largest cats, the tigers and lions, can use infrasound. The largest Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of the higher primates do. None of the higher primates do, but maybe we're not the largest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good and point. And that, that, it, was, it was just like, you know, one would expect a coyote. Well, you know, think about a wolf can use infrasound. Why can't a coyote? Well, it's not the largest. It just seems like the largest of the, fam- the, the, the families can use this ability in mammals. And uh, it was it was very consistent, which was the another amazing thing. It's like, well, you know, the elephant has a family, and I forget exactly what it's related to. It may be related to, like, the rhinoceros and stuff like that. But, uh, it, you know, it, the, the elephant can use infrasound. So, you know, obviously there is – and think about the thick – the thickness of their neck is so you can imagine their vocal cords and, and the howls we hear or we allege, you know, if they can make a chest vibrate, uh, chances are they probably do have that use of infrasound. But, um, and of course, some of the reactions that people get, of course, you know, I, I take them as, you know, maybe they're anecdotal because they're really not based on anything, but I've experienced it myself. So it's like, mm, I, I got to lend some credence to it, but not on any type of like factual basis. But my opinion of that is, and it's based on, you know, just pure research data and, and, and listening to people talk about their experiences and what they feel. And I think that's a huge thing too, is, is that we tend to put emphasis on uh, Bigfoot sightings like UFO sightings, you know, oh, uh, you know, a class A sighting, you know, uh, you know, where you actually see it. That's more important than a class B, which may be a sound or a vocal. But the important thing to remember is in all of this is what's the behavior being exhibited. If you don't hear a Sasquatch and you're starting to get, if you don't see the Sasquatch and you're starting to get a lot, uh, a tremendous vocal and rocks start flying at you, that's a lot more uh that's a lot more useful information to me as a researcher than somebody seeing one crossing the road. You know, because I know that if they're, they're throwing rocks and, and using large vocalizations, that's a territorial behavior. In other words, that's where they're hanging out. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, one crossing the road is just a, a happenstance. Mm-hmm. And, and just for our listening audience, if they haven't figured it out by now, you're strictly zoological in your approach to this research, are you? I'm, I'm strictly uh, well, I'm flesh and blood, yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, I, you know, in, infrasound would also, um, and the other cool thing is infrasound uh, will, could also uh, explain some of the more, quote, unquote, paranormal aspects of a Bigfoot, along with a couple other things like post-traumatic regression and uh, the, the time it takes for a mind, the mind to figure out what it's looking at. So a mm-hmm. lot of those things are all logical explanations. You know, somebody said, well, I saw a Bigfoot in front of me, and it just, you know, disappeared. Um, 
you know, either it ran off and you missed it or, you know, while you were trying to figure it out, it disappeared or maybe it was such a traumatic event that, um, you know, you regressed it, the, the actual remainder of the, the encounter. Um, that's why people who get, you know, into car accidents, they don't remember the point of impact if they have a head injury or they, you know, it's not because their their brain lost that information. It's because their brain is shutting off to protect that person from remembering the event. Just like a child who's abused sometimes at a very young age forgets that until later in life because their mind is shut it off. And, and mm-hmm. it's a way of protecting the, the, the brain, the mind, I should say. And, uh, uh, and of course, when you see something that's not in your catalog, I mean, the way people see things right. is that yeah, they see these signals, it goes up to the brain, the brain interprets it. Well, if it's not in your system, it takes the brain a few seconds to go, what the hell am I looking at? Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, for those who believe in Sasquatch or, you know, have, have like a researcher that I'm, I'm out there looking for this and that you see one. Okay. Now I understand. But for a person who doesn't believe in it, has never seen one before, never even thinks about it, and there it is in front of them, yeah, they they can they can miss some crucial pieces while that data is trying to be, you know, uh, interpreted. Um, so they lose that that second. And of course, infrasound itself can cause vibrations in the eyes, vibrations in the ears, and it can cause people to believe that they've been mind spoke to or believe they've been told to get out of the area or, you know, or it could, you know, why did the Bigfoot turn into an orb? It's because you're hallucinating as a result of the infrasound. Um, So, yeah, it can can cause all those things. Um, And one of the things I point out, too, is, um, and I don't don't know if if Tom has seen it, but, uh, you know, Julian Tom, have you ever seen that movie Paranormal Activity? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you think it was particularly scary? Um, I thought it was, uh, uh, tantalizing. I don't get scared Mm -hmm. that easily. Right. Now, now how about Julie? Did you see it? Well, I, I, I thought it was, um, unpredictable. Like you didn't know it was coming next, but you were like on high alert. Right. But neither, but now Tom, did you see that in the movie third or did you see that at home? Oh no no I haven't seen it I I haven't gone to a theater in years I usually okay. yeah. and Julie I would, have, have you have Julie, did, yep. <laughs> did Julie see it on TV or did you go to the theater to see it I saw it in the theater yeah okay when it first so, came out cool. the very first now one. we have we have we have two different opinions you thought it was tantalizing Tom but you you Julie thought you were kind of on the edge of your seat right. And yeah. the thing is, is the theater versions with the sound systems, the director pumped in infrasound. And that's what made it creepier and scarier. That's why people who've seen it at home didn't really think it was scary. But the people in the theaters thought it was scary or kept you on the edge of your seat because you didn't know what was going to happen. It makes you jumpy, right? That's yeah, infrasound. Yeah, like what's coming next, you know? Right. And that, that was infrasound. Because the director pumped infrasound into the movie. That's so uh, Yeah, well, I did notice when I, you did you, back in the 80s when theaters weren't so ridiculously overpriced. But, uh, yeah. I, I did go to see the odd film uh, in the theater. And I always noticed that the jump scares seemed to be more effective in the theater than it does yep. watching on a television screen. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, but but it's amazing that the director actually used infrasound in in the well, and the you know obviously uh, you know a television wouldn't have the ability to spit that out as <laughs> well as the theater system, which was made to use right. that sound, and that's why you may have been a little more on edge, not knowing what's going to happen next, and going, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to end? And <laughs> that's just right. So then, right. You know, so, so what you're saying cool is, person. if they do have some type of capacity to uh, use infrasound, you wouldn't even know it necessarily. Like, you're not like going, "Oh, this thing has infrasound." You're you're feeling a certain way, and you're not sure why. Correct. Or you're hearing something, or you're seeing something. You're, yeah, it's not there, because of. Uh, and that was back into a study in the 70s. In fact, uh, when they evacuated the Cuban embassy in uh, uh, a few years back because of the sickness that was going on, mm-hmm. they weren't sure if they, if the Cubans or whoever were using infrasound on the em- embassy or, you know, ultrasonic waves, which are very, very high pitched, but. Um, yeah, infrasound has been weaponized as well. So, absolutely, they could explain that eerie hair on the back of your neck standing up, feeling mm-hmm. that you're being watched. Yeah, but I always point out to people who say that I felt like I was being watched. I said, anytime you're in the woods, you are always being watched. Yeah, yeah, true. Something's <laughs> watching out there, watching you. There's always snickering. Probably <laughs> snickering too. <laughs> Well, Julia, we, uh, you want to uh, ask Steve about his uh, podcast and how that got going and how he thought of that idea as well? Yeah, I want to make sure we get that in there before we close out the show in a little bit. Um, I know, Steve, you've been doing the podcast for a long time. Yep, uh, I've got the, one of the longest-running shows mm-hmm. in the, ever on the Bigfoot topic. Started it September 24th in 2006, and um, we started right here, uh, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Wow! And uh, we we ran for a number of years, and then finally in 2019 we transitioned to YouTube because we could take advantage of uh, readily now uh, services that provide streaming, and uh, it gave us a whole new forum to, to show video, you know, to show videos and pictures, mm-hmm. uh, you know, instead of trying to tell people, you know, just by voice to go here or go there. Um, and really, you know, we, can, we like I said, we can take sound files and put them on our board and have people listen to them and stuff. We, it's, uh, we just upgraded the technology a bit with the times. Oh, yeah, that was an awesome show when I was on your show just not long ago. And um, the name of your podcast is Squatch D T V and it's found on YouTube. Yes. Yep. The uh, the original podcast was Squatch Detective Radio when we were on Blog Talk Radio. And uh when we moved over originally I was gonna call it Squatch Detective T V but I, I just shortened the, the Squatch D T V almost like a T V station handle. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> uh, Julie Steve Steve's podcast is the main reason I finally decided to get into the 21st century computer <laughs> Because the first time I was ever on his show, I didn't have cameras and uh, and uh, Zoom and all that. Yep. And he, I had to phone in. And poor Steve's 
trying to hold up a cell phone to the mic. <laughs> yeah. We did that I, with Julie. Yeah, yeah I couldn't. I was just saying, you know, it was just, but it came off okay. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, Thomas, because I I can't do the uh, video chat from here because I never know if my internet's going to be working, you right. know. <laughs> and so I'm still kind of, <laughs> I'm still not in the 21st century myself. Yeah, yeah um, it, it does take a lot of bandwidth. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, it does. And my my internet didn't like it. <laughs> It was it. It, it. it downright got it mad. Yeah, it freaked out. <laughs> but um, now, Steve, you, you've you been doing this show. Now, who is your co-host? Do you have a regular co-host? Yes, my my regular co-host is Chris Bennett. He used to run the yeah. Kentucky Bigfoot, Re, uh, the Bigfoot Research Project of Kentucky. Met him way back in 2006 or 2007, early 2007. And in 2010, he took over the reins, full-time reins as co-host of the show. So he's been with me 13 of the 17, whatever number of years, 17 years of doing this. Um, and, uh, you know, he was very uncomfortable at first being on camera because we, he came on, we were still on blog talk for a number of years. Um, and uh, that, that in of itself was a, was a big transition. I didn't mind being in front of a camera, of course, you know, doing all the TV stuff I've done, so it was fine. But uh, I coaxed him into it, and now he's cool with it, and we, we're all with it. And uh, we, we've grown the channel to over 6,400 subscribers now uh, because, of course, when you go to YouTube – you know, you're at a lot of, you know, you're, you're starting fresh, you know, it's not like blog. Right. It's not like blog talk where we had our followers every time. And, 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 you know, there's pros and cons to both platforms. Um, but you know, the, uh, the cool thing is, is that, uh, it, it's paying for itself now, which is a wonderful thing. Um, and, and because of the numbers, we have a membership where we have an exclusive content area and, um, you know, members get some, insight into what I'm thinking, although that can dry, I know that probably drives some people to a mental institution, but it's just a neat way, and uh, we're always trying to expand what we're doing. Uh, just this last weekend, I actually uh, did two live streams. I, te- I did one day of Hocking Hills for about three and a half hours, and the second day, we did a full seven hours of live streaming. And uh, people could just watch the street, and every once in a while, I would I would get on there and talk, and you know, spin the camera around to have a guest. And we had a number of guests on day one, day two. We didn't do as many guests, but we we had a few. And um, you know, it was it was a great experiment. So now we may do that wow. again in at the Whitehall Sasquatch Festival, and just put it up there so people can take in the sights and sounds of what's going on. And I know at one point uh, on day two uh, of Hockney Hills. There was a Sasquatch going by on a Harley, which is kind of funny. <laughs> that that's so cool, and it's a win-win, right? The yep. the people who are behind the the conference or the the event, um, it's good publicity for them, yep. and it's hey, well, also it good sense. because you know people become familiar with um, with your podcast that may not have known about it because it's, oh, wow, it's Hawking Hills. I wish I could have went, but I couldn't, so I'm going to yeah. check this out. So it's really a cool concept. 
Yeah, I, it was just it was just a, a thought like the week before. I said, you know what? If I can do it, I will scream and see what happens. I, I've, you know, we actually did a podcast uh, back in 2019, or no, not 20, 2021. We did a podcast uh, on an expedition we had because I, I looked the map up and we had 5G coverage. So I said, you know what? For the show tonight, we're all going to the woods. So I took a couple of you know, took a, uh, you know my my uh, my wife. Her best friend and uh, uh, one of my my research partners, uh, Mike Ann, uh, and uh, off we went, and we actually had a very eventful night. Uh, wow. We had a, a single tree knock, which we weren't doing anything really to provoke anything. Um, in fact, uh, just prior to the tree knock, I heard something rather large walking around the woods. And I was like, you know, now, folks, I'm not saying this is a Sasquatch. I don't see it. I don't hear it. And I'm using my phone as a remote feed into the StreamYard uh, thing. And uh, I'm not saying this is a Bigfoot, but there's something large walking around here. And it seems to be getting closer to me. And I don't know if it could be a bear. It could be a moose because we've had moose up on this this area, uh, pretty, you know, rather recently. So I don't know what it is. So I'm going to ask Mike suit up and come down because I was doing a solo walk down the, the dirt road. Mike came down and we started, you know, moving forward again. And we started therming because we heard something uh, like a rustle almost. And we started therming and Mike gets something very briefly and loses it. And then all of a sudden you hear off in the distance, a tree knock. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we heard it very loud, but recorders didn't pick it up very well. It really ample, but we heard it loud and clear. And like I said, nobody was up there. Nobody, we didn't tree knock to begin with. So why would something tree knock? And the temperature was 48 degrees. So the temperature wasn't cold enough to make, give that tree, because when it gets really cold, trees can pop on their own. Mm -hmm. But usually that's when it's like, you know, uh, below, below freezing and it gets to be like 28, 24 degrees, they start cracking and popping. Um, but that, it, like I said, it was a 48 degrees at the time. So we end up moving down the road and being caught all live on the podcast. We moved down the road a little bit more. And uh, while we're talking, and this came very clearly, clearly over the audio, was a, tr a rock coming through the treetops and hitting the ground beside our feet. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it was amazing. And then we we eventually put the recorded version that was on our recorders, and it was even louder. You just hear, yeah, you know, it was like, and we just had a rock thrown at us. And I kind of laughed. Mm. And of course, my audience yeah, reaction yeah. is, my my audience's reaction is, wait a minute, you're getting a rock thrown here, and your reaction is to laugh. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not afraid. <laughs> oh wow! I'll tell you. Let me ask you this, Steve. And our listeners would probably are thinking this. Have you actually had a, a sighting that you believe you saw a Sasquatch? I've had two sightings. And it's in my primary research area, like I said, in the Adirondack Park. Um, in, in 2006, I did get a, a rather good foot casting of that. Um, a year and a half later, another researcher cast a same we believe it's the same individual and in fact uh because it has the same strange toe toe deformity and actually cliff barrickman has that the second cast that was made now he has that up at the museum um but uh yeah so i cast one in fact that was the first time i ever i believe i smelled one uh oh, just really? prior to f finding the track 
we heard uh, like a groaning and something walking around us from our, you know, seven o'clock to our 11 o'clock kind of, you know, around us, but, you know, nearby. And while it was doing that, we could hear, we could hear the movement and we got hit with this tremendous smell. And I've been a paramedic before and I've smelled a dead body that's been around for a week or two. And it smelled like that, but worse. And it had a skunky mm. bit to it. And it had a trash bit to it. So I understand where the skunk ape comes in. I can understand why people would say musk, wet dog, calf garbage, all rolled into one. And as soon as it was there, it had left. So then we, we and when we're going out, we actually found uh, the track that had crossed perpendicularly to the trail uh, about 35 feet away from us. Um, and then we came back the next morning when it was daylight and we had found the trackway going up the hill and around us and into the woods to where we kind of lost it in the brush. But, uh, um, in 2011, um, I had my team out in that area doing reconnaissance and it was about nine o'clock or so, nine thirty or so. And we recalled the troops to get refreshments, have a little bite to eat, let's debrief and we'll start out for mission part two. And we're all in the camp, and we're kind of, you know, if you know my personality, I'm cantank. I can be cantankerous, and I can be funny. No. And, you know, the people around me are like the same. And uh, so I was like, well, my my headlamp looks a little dim. I'm going to go out to my car and get some batteries. So I went out to my car on the dirt road, got some batteries, threw them in my pocket, lit up a cigarette, shined my flashlight downhill, which is the north side, which is where at that time a lot of the activity was going on. There was other reports from other people that had had sightings down that area. And I spin my flashlight around to the south side, which is uphill, and standing next to a utility pole is an eight-foot uh, conical-shaped, long-haired, you know, sl- rather slender, uh, eight-foot-tall bipedal bipedal creature, and the mm. eyes were reflecting back a a very dark orange, not quite red, but not not orange. They were very dark. They were darkish, and I could see the damn thing blinking. And uh, after a, a period of time, I don't know how long, I kind of just froze and kept the light on it. Uh, and may have been 100 to 125 feet away, I believe. It, it's hard to tell. They've actually removed that pole now, so I can't measure it anymore. But um, uh, anyway, I, I moved the light, and it walked into the forest uh, to the south side of our camp. And um, I call out one of my teams who had a videographer, and, like, literally, I was videotaped minutes after my sighting to explain, you know, and he was like, what did you see? And I'm explaining it. And I was kind of out of it. My eyes were wide open, um, and, uh, you know, it's pitch black, and I'm, like, out of it. But uh, while this is all going on, um, you can hear the camp in the background yelling, hey, we have a lot of movement going on on the southwest side of the camp, which, which is the direction it was headed off into, uh, which was, in of itself was, was kind of wild. Um, they eventually... And they caught that on film too. They found the actual cut where it had stepped into the forest, and you could still see dirt, you know, falling into the cut where it had stepped in, stepped off into the forest um, from the road. Uh, that was sighting number one. Now, sighting number two was a, almost a year later in the same area, um, and we were shooting for Nat Geo at the time, um, and uh, they had we had traveled all day. It was miserably wet. Uh, raining and uh, we had all um, you know Nat Geo came and said listen we're, we're not going out tonight we're, we're beat 
all we want to do is, you know, if you want to do some initial interviews, go ahead. And they did. And they were gone within a couple hours. So we ate something and we're all around the campfire. It was me, uh, another uh, researcher from Georgia, another researcher, two researchers from Ohio. And we're all kind of just sitting around. And eventually, or, you know, one by one, we all kind of pick off and go to bed. So it was maybe about one thirty, two thirty in the morning because uh, I wasn't really looking at my watch. But, you know, nature calls. I had to use a tree. So I, I unzip my tent as I poke my head out of the tent and I start to climb out. I look off to my left, which is the road, that dirt road, parked in the same spot almost I was. But between this time, between the dirt road and where the camp was, here was this five and a half foot long reddish brown haired thing. And it just bolted off on two feet. And my first reaction was, no, nah, I, I couldn't have just seen that. And then the next day, and the next day, the guy from Georgia goes, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, I went out to my car at 11 o'clock to get my pillow and blanket. And I go to put it back and look what's in behind my vehicle. It was a birch log. Oh, yeah. And, and what we had been collecting all night and day during the day because it had been so wet was birch. Because birch will burn wet um, because mm. of the oils inside of the, the bark. And... There's this birch log behind her, you know, almost like very, it's almost like similar to what Ron Moorhead had said about, you know, the gathering of some, you know, they had a hole in the roof of their cabin, how they were collecting, you know, uh, uh, pine, uh, pine branches and stuff to plug up the hole. And the next one morning they got up and they found a pile of pine branches near their Mm -hmm. camp. That wasn't there, and it was very similar to this. We were we were grabbing birch all we could, and next thing you know, here's this birch log near our camp that was not there the night before. You know, and just so coincidentally you were being during the, for how long? Who knows? Oh yeah, well exactly. We were probably being watched during the daytime because that's when we collected our wood. Because then we had to get into camp and set up and do all that fun in the rain. Of course, it was. Uh, but at nighttime, it had stopped raining. It was a full moon, but it was overcast. So everything had like this night light type of glow to it. It was it was October again. So the leaves have dropped. So, you know, it was very you got a uh, you know, you got a nice little glow out of the, the moon, even though it was behind, you know, cloud cover. That is insane. I don't know yeah. that I would just calm about it. Well, I, you know, it's uh, you know, it's all the na- it's the nature of who you are sometimes. And like uh, I have, like I said, I, I was a paramedic. I was a fire volunteer firefighter for a number of years. I was also a part time paid firefighter for a number of years. And uh, when when you're in the thick of things like that, you know, there isn't much that 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 shakes me or, or makes me go into a full panic. So, uh, you know, and I, I grew up uh, in the volunteer. I mean, I, I was 18. I became a volunteer firefighter. And, I, and by 19, I was an EMT. And by 22, I was a paramedic. So it, it was, you know, yeah, you, you get into circumstances and situations that, you know, I've run into burning buildings where people are running out. And once you do that, you're, right. not, you know, there isn't a lot of much that you can be thrown at, you know, maybe, maybe the only thing that compares to it is war. Well, it doesn't compare to it. It only exceeds it. This may be war or being in a, in a, in a, uh, a firefight. Um, but, uh, there's anything more harrowing. It's running into a burning building where you can't see anything. Um, right. Maybe some, except some clothes and you're looking for people or you're trying to put water on it or whatever. So, 
So you you have no doubt that these things exist. I I, I don't now. I know they exist, but uh, I still have to treat each case as an individual basis. Um, it, it does not. Uh, change the way I investigate. It does not change the, the way I think. It it only enhances that I know this exists. I want to know if this is a legit report. And if it's if it's horse manure, you know, why would I want to convince myself it's real? Because that would just waste my time. And um, you know, time is a precious thing. So right. I just want to ask before we run out of time, Steve. Has your enthusiasm for the subject waned at all from today to when you first started? No, no. I've, I've, I've take, always taken time to refresh here and there, but I, I still love, uh, you know, if I, I hear of a report and I'm on it, it's like, yeah, let's go. Let's get this done. Let's figure it out. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it never stops. I'm always looking for the, the next story. I'm always looking for the next guest. I'm always looking for the next mission. I'm always looking for the next witness. And it doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly appreciate that about you. And I know you've wrote some books. Um, would you like to tell us, are, are they still available somewhere? Yeah, all, uh, all of them are available on Amazon.com. Uh, 50 Large, which is a true story of the Bigfoot body hoax. Um, the second one I wrote was What Would Sasquatch Do, which is a lot about primate behavior in relation to uh, Bigfoot behavior. And uh, book three was the Sasquatch Playbook, which uh, covers a lot of the different theories on what Bigfoot may or may not be able to do, such as infrasound, uh, uh, eye shine, what causes it, is it a projection or mm-hmm. is it a tapetum lucidum, and, uh, you know, stuff of that nature. Wow. And those are available at Amazon. And I am writing my fourth book now. Um, I'm only a couple of chapters in, so I don't know when it's going to be ready because I don't rush it. It's going to be called The Psychology of Bigfoot. Ooh, I like that. Yep. Very interesting show. I've learned a lot tonight, Steve, I must tell you. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate that, and like I said, uh, my 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 resources are open to any any of anybody that is a legit researcher. Uh, my resources are, are an open book to them. They need me, just drop me a line. Nice. And I am certainly not the end all be all. There's a lot I don't know, and uh, in fact, I probably know uh, I probably know less than what I don't know, but. Right. Um, at least I try to set myself and other people around me in the right direction. Mm. And it's refreshing because both uh, you and and I and Thomas know how wacky it can be in the big <laughs> community with all of this oh, yeah. wooery. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, and it's funny, and I'll just make this little editorial comment. I'll be cutting a video probably tomorrow morning, but... Uh, uh, there was a certain person that came out and, and tried to say the people the reason why people don't look like like her evidence is because of jealousy and all this other stuff, and uh, they're just jealous. No, it's because it's horse manure. That's why what they're, what they're putting out there is horse manure, plain and simple. Um, you're telling me that's a bigfoot, but you know that's a picture and it doesn't prove anything. And you know, it looks like a modern art masterpiece to me rather than a bigfoot. Sorry. And, you know, when you, when your track is put in front of a scientist who says, you know, 
hey, this is this is a human. That's not jealousy. That's a professional opinion no. by somebody who's seen tracks before. So, well, Steve, you just keep in mind anytime you get in a debate with somebody like that, you state the facts, and they don't come back with a counter argument. They basically personally attack or accuse you of mm-hmm. something. They've Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Yeah, they're to their defeat. Yeah, you're just jealous. No, yeah, I'm jealous. jealous of, and yeah. I, I always, I always turn around and say, jealous of what? Jealous yeah. of what? I've, I've been on TV consistently for what, oh, uh, almost 15 years now, 16 years. I, I've been, you know, I, I've been on hundreds of podcasts. I've been in print. I've been in print in newspapers. I've been quoted in magazine articles. What am I jealous of? Right. You know, I've gotten my own cast. I have two of my own sightings. I've I've gotten to inv- investigate some incredible pieces of evidence um, or potential evidence, and I, I've gotten to talk to some great people. What have I got to be jealous of? <laughs> oh man. Yeah. yeah, that's true. You're just jealous that my standards are not as low as yours. <laughs> well, I think you intimidate people, Steve, whether you mean to or not. I'll just throw that out there. I just like I, to say I've been called a lot worse by a lot better people. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, what an interesting show, Steve. I'd love to have you back on on another time, and maybe we can delve more into certain topics, like the infrasound topic. I'd love to delve more into that because um, I've had so many people who I've talked to and, you know, they've, and myself personally, you know, that the, the campfire scream sound that you heard that I played on your show, that one vocalization that sound like it was like right over here to my left and I could feel it go through my chest. That kind of stuff I'm very interested in because I've personally experienced that and I'd love to know more about how how that all works. Oh yeah, there is so much to this field. I mean from from, you know, proper investigation technique to the psychology of a witness to Stuff like infrasound and, uh, you know, eye shine, the tapetum lucidum versus bioluminescence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, the hair, you know, hair analysis, footprints and, and you know, what are the characteristics of a, of a Sasquatch print versus a human print. And, you know, because a lot of people that, you know, it, it's always the argument, oh, well, there's some sort of human. They're us. No, no, they're not. Their foot, their their feet are 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 you know, ortho lot orthopedically different than ours. So that indicates that their DNA would be different than ours. Um, and and people don't get that. It's that simple. Is that yeah. if they if they were if they were human, they would look exactly like us. Maybe they have a little more hair. Maybe they but they don't look anything like us. Mm-mm. But that's something called uh, anthro uh, anthropocentrism, where we tend to take animals and give them human-like characteristics. Hmm. Yeah, we definitely got to have you back on. What do you yeah. think, Thomas? I agree. <laughs> well, Thomas, is there anything else you wanted to add? I, I see we're a little past the hour here, and... Um... So I just want to say to our audience, 
the Squatch Detective uh, podcast is something you got to check out if you've never checked it out before. Great grasp, great conversations, and a lot of stick to the facts and never deviate from the facts. This is exactly the way this kind of investigation should go. I, I appreciate that so much from a man of your caliber. Mm-hmm. I, and I totally agree. Yeah. yeah, Steve. Steve's the real deal. People aren't familiar with you. They need to get familiar with you because they can learn a lot from your experience. So mm. we we really appreciate you coming on the show and taking time out of your I know crazy busy schedule. Yeah, I'm kind of on a, on a downturn right now. Just getting back from that that conference. I took a couple of days off just to chillax a little bit. Because that was two days of non, actually two and a half mm. days of nonstop, and and you know twenty hours worth of driving in between, you know, ten hours <laughs> yeah. each on the bookends. So, so yeah, mm. I, took, I uh, but I still been I, I still been at it behind the scenes a bit yet. So I'm not really taking a break, but just not out there too much until tonight. So. Well, we really appreciate it, and we hope to have you back on maybe. Uh, when you get to getting ready to publish that book, we certainly want to get you on uh, to let people know that's coming out. Absolutely, and uh, I want to thank you guys for having me on. It's always been it's always fun talking with you and Tom. It's always been a blast. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, and Thomas, uh, as always, it's been a great show. It's been my honor, my lady. Well, we really appreciate all our listeners. And if you have any questions or comments or uh, – what what is your email address, Steve, if somebody wanted to try to get a hold of you? Uh, my email address is admin, A-D-M-I-N, at squatchdetective.com. Okay. Yeah, and if somebody wants to get a hold of Steve and you're not sure how or, you know, whatever, just – Get a hold of me, julie.wrenchyahoo.com, and I'd be glad to give you the information. So um, oh. another great show, and we'll, we will be back again. I know we took a little hiatus there. We had some my, – my partner of 22 years had a triple bypass surgery, so we had to <laughs> – that was kind of a stressful time. But um, he's doing much better now, and the shows can go on. So we'll be back at it. And thank you all for listening.
it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.